When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Van Oppen. Adjust Your Tracking is brought to you by the Playlist Podcast Network. All our episodes and those of our other shows on the network can be found at theplaylist.net. So Joe, uh, what, what are we talking about today? Well, let's see. We're kind of talking about um, what we always talk about, you know, like <laughs> where, where we're at with movies, like what, what cinematic moment are we in to sort of like the thick of mm. and I think like mostly we'll be hitting on with like both sections of our discussion is like recreating a moment and like a moment in time, like in, in sort of like a cinematic moment that really can't be captured again. One with a sort of reopening of a franchise, that franchise being the Blair Witch franchise. And then with our holdup segment, your pick was Donnie Darko, mm. uh, how a filmmaker found like a, a sort of once in a lifetime zeitgeist, truly cult movie moment, and then capitalize on it by making more films, but the audience really wasn't there for it. You know? <laughs> And uh, the audience, the critics weren't there for it either. Um, And yeah, just talking about like, I don't know, just like how, kind of where we're at. So like starting with Blair Witch, um, I think we hinted at the, like maybe a previous podcast or maybe it was off mic that we were talking about this. But um, the phenomenon of like 1999 when that movie came out, the original, the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. um, and just how it, it introduced this new kind of language for, for horror with like the found footage POV type horror that now I feel like has been run so aggressively into the earth that it's just like it like there's there's nothing new that can be done with it. And I know that that was the initial sort of like excitement to to this particular film, The Blair Witch. Uh, directed by Adam Wingard, written by Simon Barrett, who both of which we've championed on this podcast before with their previous works. Indeed, there was like there was an excitement to like we there's still more to be done with the found footage. Like I remember reading that once we found out that like the woods, which this was initially titled in its sort of like festival run and in its development stages, was then was, then became like no, this is the Blair Witch. This is the next installment of like the Blair Witch saga. So they were they were like on record as saying like there's still there's still more scares to be had in the found footage department and like I watched it I want you and I both watched the film separately granted but um I I don't I don't feel like there is and yeah. I like, there's like I, I, as I was watching it I remember like just feeling like oh there's a real genuine kind of sweetness to the original film to the Blair Witch Project Mm. and there's a naturalism to it like there there just was like a sense of 
like not only with the performances in the film of the, like the three leads who you know they're they're on their way into these woods to investigate what you know this paranormal activity of something called the legend of like the Blair Witch, and uh, the whole movie is like is what they're experiencing real, and so like the movie is raw enough, especially in the theater when you see it, like right. and like there there was. There was an actual, very sweet too. There was a sense that like, could this be real? Is this like actual footage? I don't know. Like, you know, and at this point, like we're so, so cynical. Like the thought that that could happen is so, it's so sweet, you know? And like (laughs) there was a sweetness to the audience that they're willing to sort of like give themselves over to the experience. And, and like, and the, the horror existed in like, is any of this real? Like is any, is what they're experiencing just what your imagination does to you when you're left in the dark in the woods Mm. and that terrain. And so like you needed to believe that these were real people because that therefore you identified with them. And with this next, with this new iteration of it, it's a horror movie from the, from the start. Yeah. Like it's immediately a horror movie with horror movie, like caricatures, like I was going to say archetypes, but they're more just like caricatures and like, feeling the strain in like a lot of found footage movies of like justifying the gimmick of it being these cameras has just gotten too exhausted. You know, it's just like too much of like, Oh, we've got these new cameras that are, that are like with they attached to your ear. So it's like when you're looking at the person, it's like, okay, so you actually just want to shoot a straight up normal over the shoulder scene right now, but you can't do it because you're filming a fucking POV found footage movie. So you have to find a way to make it work. How about you just don't? How about you just don't make a fucking <laughs> footage movie if there's not a real reason to? Right. Maybe the I mean, more innovative way to make this Blair Witch sequel, which, you know, we're not going to belabor it, but neither of us are really big fans of, nor nor are a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the franchise has probably done it at this point, but the maybe a more exciting way would have been to find some marriage between the um, the the mostly forgotten, but it's been drummed up the, the bizarre uh, book of shadows uh, sequel right. that came out like a year after the original film is that movie doesn't work from my memory. It was pretty like, just like incomprehensible and, and just like kind of bad. But um, there's an, there's like, there is an attempt in that movie to do something completely different and still try to find a way to make it tied into that original film. Yeah. But yeah, this is just the, it's almost like this is the sequel you've been waiting for, except they forgot to check. Like, did anybody, was anybody waiting for a Blair Witch yeah. sequel? And it's just like the the found footage movies, I feel like are still, they're still getting made to some degree. I think most of them are getting dumped on VOD at this point. Like a not, not a lot of them are still making their way into theaters. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is the last gasp of them, luckily. Sorry to a friend of the show. Helmy, who loves found footage movies, and the <laughs> only reason I care about them anymore is that he has an affection for them. But like, yeah, they just they've they've been so thoroughly. I think this will tie in with uh, like our Richard Kelly discussion. Just that sometimes people don't know what's likable about um, something that's successful, you know, and so they'll mm. they'll hit they'll keep hitting something, and it's just like, well, I guess like you you weren't really taking stock of what worked. And what work doesn't necessarily always continue to work, you know, like right, right. if it's exhausted. And so like what worked about the, the original conceit for the Blair Witch Project is that like it, it's maybe not duplicatable over and over again. It was a true phenomenon. And like also what 
kind of like in this new one, like like you said, like we're not going to belabor the point because it's like this movie's already not doing well. So it's like let's not beat up a movie with filmmakers that we actually care about, you know, like, you know, it, it's what's depressing and how fast shit moves nowadays. Mm. Maybe the day after opening day, or could it even been opening day? There was like a headline on the AV club that said, Adam Wingard is already announcing his return to form with his next film. And it was like, the movie just opened. Like, and he's art, like the, the sort of like the press push is all about the hype of it coming out. And I remember pull quotes from like, from the woods that eventually went on to become the Blair Witch, were like, "This is a game changer. You will, you'll, you've never been this scared before." And then it whoopee cushions out, and they're like, "Nah, it's not very good." But you know what? My next one. She's like, "Jesus Christ! Like, what <laughs> is? Is there any like investment in the longevity of anything anymore? That mm-hmm. like, it's all just this sort of like empty car salesman hype until it all sort of like, you know, empties out, and then you're just like." Yeah, catch me on the next one. Like, oh, God, I feel duped in this sort of idiotic way. It just feels cynical, like really in a really ugly way. Yeah, no, God, man, I totally agree. And it's like the naivety that that happened in 1999 where I remember like having arguments with friends that like, no, that Blair Witch Project, it's not real. But man, I kind of, um, while that really bugged me at the time, because I was like, they just straight up wouldn't believe me. I don't know if you had similar um, conversations with people, whereas like, I could be like, no, like they're real. These people are still alive. You know, you just try to convince them and they're like, they just have believed them. He's in the new Cuba Gooding Jr. movie. I'm (laughs) sure this is fake. (laughs) No, no. Yeah, they just wouldn't like... I, now I kind of like long for that, but that is something that only I think can happen in that way once. Like you said, it's the Blair Witch Project is truly like a lightning in a bottle situation because a lot of people also from my memory back then didn't like it after they saw it. You know, it was like this big, um, it was an example of that pushback that can happen when a movie gets hyped up for so long. Yeah. Um, but man, I, what I wouldn't give to just go back to a time where people could believe something like that. So we've, we've kind of, it's almost like people were burned that might've believed it. And now we're so for, you know, you know, almost 20 years later, it's like our audience is feeling burned. So the cynicism just bubbles up as a result. And if the movie doesn't work well, we declare it right away on opening day and, yeah, I, I was just reading interviews with Adam Wingard, and he's talking about um, he's got a movie called Death Note that's coming out. Yeah, I mean, he it's works be a for Netflix movie, right? And then uh, I saw The Devil. His remake of that is still next after that, from what I hear, which I'm still interested in uh, to see what they could do. But yet, um, I don't know. It's it, it sounds like him and Simon Barrett, who's like his producer writer, they've collaborated on almost everything together. They're trying to play that game. Like, can we? put out movies that have that are familiar IP, you know, they exist already in the culture. Yeah. Uh, but can we also do our own thing? Because they've had success, at least in our eyes with uh, their previous films. You're next in the guest are like such good examples of like low budget genre movies. And that's what made them exciting to us. Um, but I want, you know, I want to see them step up or get bigger budgets and play that game. But I really think this year, you know, to kind of look at it in a, in a macro way of, 2016 is really showing how much like um, franchising movies were just cannibalizing the box office. And these movies are hurting each other because I think people want something that 
if anything, we know people are a lot more um, excited right now about stuff like Stranger Things, the stuff that pays homage. Yeah. As opposed to directly remakes. It might only be a slight difference, you know, because Stranger Things could be seen as a remake of many things. But right. It's an um, amalgam of like a bunch of different like reference points. Right. And, you know, we it was fun for that reason and enjoyable and for all the other reasons people liked it. But um, maybe we're really seeing a shift right now in in movie audiences. Yeah, there's like a there's a lack of interest. There's like a, a sort. There was a definite die down this summer of like interest in sequels. Like you saw that just like with like you know movies that weren't even like IP necessarily. You down with IP? Um, like <laughs> yes, for the people in, intellectual property is that what it's? Yeah. All right. So so a known kind of established brand that people are capitalizing on. There was a lot of stuff that was like, at one point it was an original film, like neighbors, like now you can, now you can see me. Mm-hmm. Is that right? <laughs> now I didn't see you. So, uh, twice. Um, but like those movies didn't do well, like as much as that's dying down, nobody knows what's taking its place. Cause there will still be like a fluke kind of like uh, a DC movie. will still do colossal business and maybe it's not enough business. Cause it needs to make a billion dollars in order to justify itself, but like, like there, there still is. Just, there's almost like no consistency anymore. So it's just like people going in blind, and like you and I keep just like hitting on this point that it's like if there's no consistency, why not just give it over to the fucking art? And so it's like I remember this conversation between Adam Wingard after the guest showed at the Sundance Next Festival, and Nicholas Winding Refn was give, doing the Q and A, and I think I've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. But they asked, like, well, you've been on the precipice of, like, transitioning into bigger films. Like, I think at this point, it was this was before Neon Demon. But it was, like, he was kind of rumored to be attached to a Logan's Run remake and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so he was real shit-talky the whole Q&A. But this is when he kind of steadied himself and was like, well, it all depends on what kind of movie you want to make. Like, if it interests you to make bigger movies, you just need to know that you're going to have that much less control. Like, you're going to have to answer to a lot of money people, and they're, they're going to have a say, and, like, I don't want to do that. And then you saw Nicholas Winning Refn pivot and make the movie that he wanted to make, and, like, that movie, to me, is a mess, but it's, like, an exciting one, at least, you know, and it's not, like, beholden to, like, anything else, really, and so there there are moments, to me, there are moments of tension and uncertainty in Neon Demon, like, not to compare the two, because they have nothing to do with each other, with it and the Blair Witch, but, like, there's just, there's moments of tension and true horror that, like, a conventional horror movie that, like, you know, Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett are trying to sort of, like, make like it just didn't it it didn't suit them because it's not their voice and so like they they just were trying to like give people something familiar and it came off so strained and so like and and like without any sort of sense of attachment to anything unique what you're getting is a series of jump scares and if the jump scares aren't connected to any actual concern for what's happening in the movie or to the people in it it's just fucking irritating. Like the movie just ends up being a series of like air horn irritations where you're like, shut the, stop. Like every chapter break, like glitch in the switch in the footage. It's like, like, you're like, all right, like enough. Like that's what, like every, everything is supposed to startle you. But all it does is like, you just, uh, you just saw my like Andy Rooney hands go up every time. Oh, come on. (laughs) Shit. 
attempt narration, take one. Take two, three. When James was four years old, his older sister disappeared while making a documentary near the town of Burkittsville, Maryland. The final moments of it showed her going into a house, seemingly within the Black Hills forest. That area was extensively searched by police and FBI, but they could find no evidence of an existing house in those woods. For as long as I've been friends with James, he's wondered what happened to her. His continued search to find closure and answers to his sister's disappearance is a subject of this documentary. I've um, harped on this a lot on this podcast of like, why does this, why this movie? Why make the Blair Witch now? You know, it didn't really seem like the audience wanted it. And it's more proof that that original was truly just that once in a lifetime type of thing that just, you right. can't, yeah. It's almost like um, the Blair Witch Project to me feels very similar phenomenon to something like The Room that the like movie that still continues to play like once a month in certain theaters, uh, mm. like the theater I work at in Portland. We still show this goddamn thing like once a month and people still come to see it. You just you could never try to capture something like that again. It just happened right time, right place, whatever. It's this weird thing. I get why they thought um, the people behind it thought it was a good idea to make a Blair Witch, like a proper quote unquote Blair Witch sequel. But clearly the audience didn't really want it. We've had all this hype up around it um, when it was announced. It seemed exciting. I kind of got sucked into it because I was like, well, Adam Wingard's behind it. That seems like, yeah, something worth uh, something worth seeing. It sounds exciting. I want to see what he does with it. But yeah. The, the movie itself just ultimately felt like a basic retread with prettier actors, uh, much more typical. Like you said, it's very clearly a horror movie from the start. And the the like attempts to try to connect it to the original are so thin and almost like unnecessary uh, that it's like, oh, it just seemed like the movie only existed for a few very basic reasons. And one is to like give you glimpses of the actual witch. And was that yeah, enough? Was that enough for this can movie? We, can we? Yeah, exactly. Can we? Can we touch on this for a second? We have to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they show the witch, and it's just like the movie works in like brief gasps, where it's just like there's a series of things all going wrong at once. Like someone's having some body horror thing happen to her, which like is goes nowhere eventually. But like that's happening. Someone goes missing, and so it's just like, oh, this might like. By and large, this movie isn't working, but maybe it'll work in stretches. And then when, like, the Blair Witch kind of reveals herself, like, very quickly, and, like, that, I think that's the key to the horror is, like, not being sure. And that's certainly why the first one worked, because you're just like, oh, what's happening? Oh, shit. What was that noise? Oh, my God. Like, I don't know what's going on. And, like, a lot of the actors in the original The Blair Witch Project, like, they didn't know what was going on. They were being, like, you know, fucked with by the the few amount of filmmakers that were involved. And, like, so there was a – their sense of terror was genuine. And, like, you just don't get the same sense with this movie. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what it's focusing on is, like, let's show let's show the Blair Witch. And you get it in, like, quick, like, flashes. And so it's like, that's – sure, that's kind of scary. But it's like, that's scary in a short film way. Where yes. it's just like, if, you, if you're forced to sort of, like, stretch it out, make it make sense, make it – Make it stretch to stretch <laughs> like the Blair. Anyway, like make it fit to a feature length to a feature length. Like it's going to fall apart. And so it's just like maybe this is just a short film. Maybe Mama is just a short film. Like maybe we yes. shouldn't make a feature length. And like on top of that, not make a sequel to that fucking movie. Because it was like for some reason I like I was so distracted during 
watching the Blair Witch, I started thinking about aliens. Mm. Like, why? You, they couldn't be further from each other. <laughs> but as I saw like little quick lightning, lightning reveal flashes of the, the Blair Witch towering in the woods, like I was like, all right, so the original alien – the design, like it was, it was best left kind of in the shadows, and so you could be like, "Oh shit, what am I even looking at? This is frightening." And in the second one, you get a good, long, horrifying look at the at the actual aliens that, like Stan Winston, you know, like brought brought to life in this terrifying way. And H.R. Giger was responsible for the original sort of design of them. But like, they there was a justification for that sequel to exist. Yes. Like they made it work. And like James Cameron, like made it like in insanely original in that way. And not everything can be that. I understand. Like, I understand that aliens is a sort of unique experience, but it's just like, otherwise, like because these movies are torpedoing, like you should have an absolute connection to them. I also understand this is a fucking business and like people just need to work and like people like Adam Wingard, I want to work. Like I want them to like get out there, but it becomes this depressing treadmill of, of like, you know, like a, a filmmaker like Dennis Widmer who made starry eyes. Now he is like connected to make mama too. Why? That doesn't, yeah. the movie doesn't need to exist. And like you made a, a, a frightening and exciting visionary little horror movie with starry eyes. I want to see you, if given the opportunity, what you would do next, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what was the, I'm blanking on the director's name who did cop car, which we talked about last year. And, oh, mean, John Watts. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, called up now he's doing a Spider-Man movie for Marvel. It's like, I mean, that's a completely different thing, but it, it is, no, I mean, it's, but it's the same, it's the same treadmill of mm -hmm. like, all right, not like we liked what you did. Let's plug you into something where like your voice will be sort of like buried, you know? Right. Or in like Nicholas winning reference cases, like uh, case, like after drive really put him on a different echelon, a different map for, for people that know him now. It was like, oh, what Star Wars movie is he going to be in? Or what what thing, known property, can he plug himself yeah. into? And I don't get why that's even desirable for anybody because the thing you respond to from directors like this is that they had something that caught your attention because it felt they unique. a point of them. view. A point of view, exactly. And um, the reality of that kind of filmmaking, and Refn has learned it even just over a few years of like going into meetings. He's talks He talks about it. It's really fascinating to hear him talk about that. Is like he's held his guns because he knows he has a perspective that that means the most to him. And yeah. it would be you know hopefully hopefully this year. And I I kind of want this to this trend to continue. We know like the Marvel movies and Star Wars movies, Pixar movies, like those things that are known entities. They're going to continue mm -hmm. to thrive. But I, I'm really hoping that the other people making movies, other be it smaller films or big budget attempts by the studios to try to match that, that success is like hopefully with how fast things move, they can also learn quickly that maybe we need to focus this into movies that have some originality to them. Take advantage of these directors that yeah. we want to give money to and give opportunities to because um, – you know, don't breathe was at least a refreshing example of something that was reminiscent of like wait until dark or certain other movies. But it, I think people really were excited by something new. Yeah. It wasn't capital. It wasn't capitalizing on the recognizability of wait until dark. Right. Not at you all. Know, and, and so it was like, it came out of a genuine interest by Fede Alvarez to make this story. I mean, plenty of interesting things can happen from business meetings, you know, there, there can be interesting 
like films made out of like a transaction, of course, you know, but like at the same time, like when things are just falling apart, like why not take a chance on the stories that are like fighting to get made? Because at least there's a life to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's important to remember that the Blair Witch Project was basically a like an experimental film, you know? Yeah. And it just never there was never the intention that it would go to a thousand screens across the country and that it would play at multiplexes like they didn't shoot it for that because it was meant to evoke someone who really didn't know what they're doing running around with a camera. And they they nailed that unlike any other found footage movie since because they want to make them tolerable to an audience with less shaky cam. And that just seemed to be, again, like the real focus for like Wingard and Simon Barrett was to like try to fix those problems that people complained about in the original. Like, Oh, like some people got sick from the shaky cam and all those elements. And if that's the only thing you're really focusing on, it's like, well, I mean, I'm glad they found an angle that they wanted to find, but that's that to me just goes back to like, why does this movie exist then? Yeah. That's too thin. It's exactly man. No doubt. And um, maybe just before we transition, I, there was this uh, article that I came across by a writer named Greg Swick. He, he actually has written for the playlist a few times and uh, it was called America has a horror problem or a horror movie problem. And it was written on uh, in the week. It's an interesting piece. He kind of points out Adam Wingard and um, James Wan is like the big charlatans of modern horror right now, which I don't totally agree with, but I still saw his point in that, a lot of these movies are just, they have an overwhelming sameness to them. It's something we complain about with yeah. the, the big blockbusters. And that is, that is definitely a, an, uh, that's a problem. And uh, again, like I think don't breathe had a sense of the new uh, green room for us. And the people that did see it, I think uh, responded strongly to it is like, those movies are going to stand out and will, and, and look more attractive, uh, hopefully to distributors and people putting these movies out in the future, because, uh, let's get more attempts at that. Like, why not? If Blair Witch sequel is only going to uh, pull like under 10 million that it did over its opening weekend, that's disappointing for them. Luckily, it was a low budget sequel and it'll be just fine. Adam Wingard's not going to go to director jail for it. But um, yeah, if if this can't, if it can't capture the audience, then let, why not throw, throw some, throw something out there that might be a little more original. We're shouting into the void though. <laughs> <laughs> well, We'll keep doing it, damn it. Just place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. No, I mean, I, I know what to do. I just, I don't get this. You can't just lump things into two categories. Things aren't that simple. The lifeline is divided that way. Well, life isn't that simple. I mean, y- who cares if Ling Ling returns the wallet and keeps the money? It has nothing to do with either fear or love. Fear and love are the deepest of human emotions. Okay, but you're not listening to me. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else. If you don't complete the assignment, you'll get a zero for the day. We did uh, did mention uh, two episodes ago that we were going to be... uh, We announced... I announced Donnie Darko as my latest hold-up edition, my latest pick for the the hold-up segment. So before we get into why, uh, Joe, uh, what is this segment all about? Well, hold-up is a a segment that we we came up with where we pick a movie that's beloved to us. And it originally started as something that we're maybe a little, like, cautious about revealing because it was, like, either critically reviled at the time or there's just something, like, there's something troublesome about our love for it, but it's come kind of come to 
be something where we just investigate like a, a movie that we love, even if it doesn't have a sort of like troubled history. And we use uh, the other person as a sort of critical counterpoint to discuss our love for it, troubled or not. And um, with this one, I think like we, we've, we've talked about Richard Kelly before and I think other filmmakers where it's like, Th- this film in particular, you and I both like have a fondness for Donnie Darko. Yes, and like talking about a filmmaker who's done something that we like so much, and then gone on to do stuff that we're so baffled by <laughs> that it doesn't even like resemble the filmmaker that we initially sort of were excited about. <laughs> this and is so, true. And so you're, I mean, can we can we come clean about the fact that you, like, you did want to talk about Southland Tales. Like, right. That, that was something you were interested in talking about, and I kind of asked you, like, well, do you, you've never really liked that movie. Like, <laughs> let's, can, let's see if we can rework this. But it's, I think they're kind of crucial to talk about in tandem with each other. Yes. Because it was, like, much like... Um, well, let's before we like get into why it's sort of important to discuss them at the same time. Like, talk to me about like your first experience watching Donnie Darko. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it was a movie that I missed. I missed the brief, you know, blip of a theatrical release that it actually received at the mm-hmm. time. And you know, it was sort of infamous is the wrong word, but it, it was uh, kind of held back in terms of its release because it happened right after nine eleven, essentially, and. Right. It was one of those movies that had a, it featured a, a elements of a plane crash play a big factor, as those of who've seen the film know. And they got scared about it, so they held off on the release, and it kind of just got buried. And it it quickly, um, I think they started doing midnight screenings not long, um, like in the same year of its actual release. And then it came on DVD where I discovered it. And it was one of those movies uh, in the early boom of, of DVD where it got passed around a lot and people talked yeah. about it like, yeah. And I just came across it through word of mouth, through other friends that had seen it, said, you need to check this movie out and found it actually kind of underwhelming, confusing for sure the first time I watched it, but underwhelming. But it was one of those movies. And I almost feel like Donnie Darko for me, why it's an important movie for me more than just uh, the fact that I love it is that it created the sense that like, Oh, I want to feel that feeling again, that what is making me go back to this movie again and again. And that's what happened to me with, with uh, Donnie Darko is I couldn't stop watching it. And uh, I was in college. So I had lots of time to like, you know, dig into films and stuff like that. I had time to, to really do something to get into it and watch it again and again. And it became kind of an obsession, an obsession where like, if I didn't watch it that week, I felt like weird. There was something new to discover every time I could, or me and friends that just all appreciated it. Like we loved all the moments, the little moments here and there. There, There's a lot of weird little things um, that just occur in this movie. Lots of like the humor um, that I just, it's still, um, I don't know. I look back fondly at that time and I'm always hoping to like get sucked into a movie's world again and again like that. So yeah, I mean, I disappointed by first viewing became obsessed very quickly. And the more and more I watched it, I was like, to me, in my mind, this is like one of my favorite movies of the two thousands. Like I'll just, I'll always have it in that top 10 list of uh, movies from like, say 2000 to 2009. It's, it's up there for me. Um, So yeah, that's definitely my, my initial, like, you know, appreciation for the film. Um, how, how did it work for you? Did you get to see it in theaters like at the yeah. time? It, um, I remember it coming out 
And like, I, I think like in addition to getting bumped, they, they just sort of buried it when it came out. Like it, it came out in Portland and it's just sort of like, I was like, what? Like, what is that movie? I haven't like heard anything about it. And it sort of like, it looked like it was just going to disappear. And then it kept like hanging out. Like it went moved around the city and then eventually I was just like, well, I mean, so there, there, there has to be something about it if it, like, didn't do well, but it still is, like, hanging in theaters. Mm-hmm. So eventually I just, I caught it on its, like, second run, like, a, like, I think a few months into its release, which, like, to think about that now, that's crazy. And to think about, like, how you watched it over and over again, that feels like a luxury of that period. Mm-hmm. And now like that there's just so many titles that it, it's almost like guilt inducing. Also with us getting older, it's just sort of like you're you're not as prone to like watching a movie over and over again the way you are when you are in college. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the way we both were around that time. And um so like when I saw it, it was like a it was two months after it had come out. I think it was like in December. And uh I loved it. And then it like it stayed in the second run theaters for like months and months. It was at the the pub theaters in Portland. And then like uh, I was working at a video store job, like kept a copy that someone had mi- mistakenly returned to Blockbuster Video that they had meant for Hollywood Video. Both places <laughs> are now bankrupt, so I think I can like criminalize myself by saying that I, I kept a copy. <laughs> um, but like at that time, like once it kind of came out on video, it really like boomed mm. because of word of mouth. Like that's when the midnight screenings really like picked up steam. Yeah, and um, I remember seeing it in Seattle at um, the I think it was the Egyptian at a midnight screening. It was packed, like insanely, like hundreds and hundreds of people, and they just like were eating it up because there is like such an atmosphere to the movie, and there is such a sense of discovery to the film that it's like there is like in rewatching it. There's like there's a there's an urgency to the movie that ties into the the kind of coming of age aspect to it. Mm. There's a, a sort of a, a sort of urgent propulsion to the movie, but there also is a weird kind of dreamy, easygoing, ethereal quality to it. There's an ominous presence that kind of like pulls the movie along in this sort of like dread-inducing way. But there's also like a weird ease and a sort of like Northern California sunniness to everything. That's like it's it's a it's a real discovery, like the the world of the film that it's in. It also came out in the early two thousands, like where like the eighties nostalgia was getting a little more sophisticated, mm-hmm. and so like Richard Kelly's fucking sound cues in the movie are so good, yes. like they're so like the opening song, which we can get in the director's cut. Yeah. In the, so. Like the opening song by Echo and the Bunnymen, The Killing Moon. Mm. It's so perfect. And when he opens the door to Jenna Malone standing there and Love Will Tear Us Apart comes on, like, I think those songs were reintroduced in that period as nostalgia. And now they're so, like, they're so given that you disregard how evocative those were in that in that period, like in mm-hmm. two, 2002 when people were seeing it. Mm-hmm. Like it was just like a real like door being kind of like blown open for people. They're like, whoa, this is like this is really effective. <laughs> and then I think like once the movie really had like picked up like such a fanfare, which again, kind of harkening back to the the Blair Witch discussion, like, can that ever happen again? Mm-hmm. Can that level of a movie being discovered that gradually over the course of a year ever happen again? Because it feels like movies like live and die in the opening weekend, 
or if they do get a chance on VOD, they're just buried in an avalanche of other stuff. I think two years later, 2003 is when the director's cut came out for the opening shot. It's like a beautiful, it's, it's, it's a, such a beautiful entry point. It's this vista of like, it's just like these beautiful tree lined mountains. And then it pans over and you see someone, you see a figure just like swamped in the road. So it's like, oh, there's, it's a kid and his bike is to the side of him. Was he hit by a car? No, he's waking up. So he's in the, like, he's waking up in the middle of like where we don't know yet. It's a perfect mystery point to start a movie. And it was just like, oh, all of it's here. Like all, and it's a perfect entry point. That song kicks in, the title comes up with the director's cut. Could be a similar opening. Song is different. Yeah, it's totally another slows slows down the pace of the movie yeah. immediately. It's a great song. It's an NXS song. Um, Never tear us apart. But right. it's just got a like a, huh, 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 huh. and it's just like it's sluggish. It's not mm-hmm. right. It's not right for the movie that I loved. And so like. <laughs> Thinking about that, and the, it, it, if given the opportunity, what would Richard Kelly do if he didn't have people to answer to? Which is the opposite of what we're talking about with like Nicholas winning Refn. Mm. Like, if given free reign to do what he wants, is that the best thing with certain circumstances? Because then you get to Southland Tales years and years later, this epic, like in his eyes, magnum opus. This, like, <laughs> this, like huge orgiastic psychedelic satire of America of Hollywood of just like excess and the opening sequence is so much fucking exposition that like there is no way to recover (laughs) and so juxtaposing the two where I was just like it's Justin Timberlake narrating what like the puzzle pieces you need to put this movie together Southland Tales and eventually by like, I think it's like, I honestly think it's like five minutes of exposition where oh, you're just looking at, at the computer screen. Yeah, more. <laughs> and you're just like, I don't care. Like start the movie, like have an interesting point the way Donnie Darko does the theatrical cut. You're like, mm. perfect. You have like a provocative entry point into the world. And like Southland Tales, I know that, I know that you wanted to discuss it because it's considered such a mess. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, and then as I was rewatching, I was like, right, like, this is why I don't attach to it as like, but it really goes for it because the movie is so dull. Like, yeah, it is so like, it's expensive, which like is a sort of sad Marvel at this point where you're just like, <laughs> I can't believe this much money went into something that is this sort of like wrong headed and all over the place. But what's repulsive about the movie to me is that it's so self-congratulatory. It's like it struts itself so much as this thing that's like, this is brilliant. Oh, I can't wait for you guys to get a load of the holy shit. And like, that's why I don't think it can really ever be considered misunderstood because it was like, yeah, but it like the way it like puffs itself up is so repugnant. Yeah. No, I mean, you really, you, you hit the nail on the head with Southland Tales there. It's like, it's weird that it has in its own way, just slowly eking out a bit of a like minor cult uh, fandom for this movie, 
where people do think it's this misunderstood masterpiece. And often what I'll hear is like, oh, it's just, it's so crazy. It throws so much at the wall that even the stuff that doesn't stick, like these fans appreciate that. And that was kind of the basis of me initially thinking, well, it's not a true hold up pick, but to examine Southland Tales, I've always wanted to see it a second time just to, just to see if it is as bad as I remember with all the anticipation of loving Donnie Darko grow, you know, getting that becoming a real fan, like a hardcore fan of that, of that first film from Richard Kelly. I'm like, whatever this guy does next. And the buildup for it was so exciting. Even with the director's cut being a pretty big disappointment for me with uh, Donnie Darko, I still held up hope. I bought the prequel comic books that you were supposed to read uh, beforehand, which don't elucidate anything <laughs> for the audience. I read every little detail about it online. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. I was really excited. It was going to the Cannes Film Festival in competition. I was like, this is it. This director that I think is brilliant is getting recognized on a grand stage. And, uh, man, it watching it a second time, there's nothing that's changed for me in terms of the the sluggish pace in it the things that make Donnie Darko the theatrical cut like come to life and crackle just all of that's gone and that's really with everything that Richard Kelly has done since and that includes the director's cut of Donnie Darko where he added a lot more stuff into it where it's like oh yeah, yeah left untethered left to his own devices this is more what he wants to do and it's made me realize a few things is like having someone give you notes in the sense that like Donnie Darko, he had to take things out and find a way to make it work theatrically. That can be a really good thing. You know, like auteur theory needs to give way sometimes to the collaborative aspects of filmmaking because it can make the movie the best version that it needs to be. And I think that's, that's what happened with the original Donnie Darko version is it was like, it wasn't just Richard Kelly's unfiltered vision. He needed other people to chime in. But yeah, he needed to be challenged. He needed to be challenged, exactly. It's it's a similar thing, but on a much smaller scale to like what George Lucas was able to, what he did with the prequels in Star Wars. Right. Yeah, left with all the money to do whatever he wants and, and no one had questioned him. That's kind of what you get. You get a mess from him as a filmmaker. Kind of what we, what we hinted at earlier with like sometimes people don't know what works about the thing that's so cherished. So right. like George Lucas doesn't know what people love about Star Wars. So he get he's like more Muppets and like, you know, like CGI is a bunch more like, like nightmarish creatures into his movie. And with like Richard Kelly, he just thinks that like his high concepts of like parallel universes and like, and bogging down a story with like just just too 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 many stories like that's what that's what people love about me like no that's not what people love about you like what's so beautiful about Donnie Darko is kind of an intangibility there's yes. like there's a sense of like an amazing ensemble like this this great discovery you have Holmes Osborne as the father so which in rewatching Donnie Darko it's so fucking heartbreaking to watch him in Southland Tales because he's lost he's not given <laughs> anything to do uh huh. And the entire cast are not starring in the same movie. Mm-hmm. Like they're all in different, like bug-eyed versions of whatever the fuck they think they're starring in. Except, if I may, digress. Yes, I think there was one performance in Southland Tales that, like, if you focus the entire movie on this character and on this performance, it's Sean William Scott. Yeah, and yeah, I was gonna I think he's fucking great in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like he's like got a connection, an emotional vulnerability, 
and like in a groundedness that's absent of everyone else in the movie who's just clowning up the entire film. Yeah, man. God, I, I've had the same feeling rewatching. I, I definitely didn't feel that when I first saw Southland Tales in theaters. Like I was just Southland so theaters. I did, man. Like opening opening day, man. That was how excited I was. Holy I didn't shit. I didn't care about all the negative press that had come, you know, from its premiere at Cannes. And uh, just a note: there's a really great Hollywood Reporter article uh, from earlier in the summer this year that just gets into that uh, the 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 making of Southland Tales and the premiere at Cannes, like where Richard Kelly claims it was very much unfinished. Apparently it was shown with unfinished effects and things like that, which that happens sometimes. Like if people, yeah, so that's unfortunate, but it's a really fascinating article worth digging into, but that's what sort of brought me back to thinking about all this. But, um, but yeah, I, I seen uh, Southland Tales. I did the same thing. I watched it first before revisiting Donnie Darko, which was a good decision because (laughs) yeah, it's, it's a slog that movie and it really shows how, um, as much as I love the script of Donnie Darko, I think the cast is so perfect in Donnie Darko and everybody knows the movie they're making. The tone is consistent through it all that they're allowed to give consistent performances and everybody really brings their, like their a game. Like Patrick Swayze is so perfectly cast in Donnie Darko and it's yeah. not just kitschy, like stunt casting, which is all of Southland tales. It's all stunt casting. Totally. It's stunt casting. And then nobody's in the same movie. It's a mess tonally. And it's also just laden so much exposition. The script is just, just weighted down by all this exposition that actually doesn't explain anything useful to the audience. It's, it's, it doesn't, none of those plot points that like are this insane convoluted, like puzzle, none of them go anywhere. (laughs) So and like, true. and I, I hear whoever is a huge proponent of this movie, like that eternal, annoying, like that's the point. Like that's such an awful, garbagey point, especially for something as fucking exhaustingly long and wasteful <laughs> as Southland Tales is. There now is like any disaster of a movie. There's a built-in kind of cynical reflex that's like. And I, sometimes that's endearing when there there is a sort of rush to declare something that's like widely dismissed as like you don't understand it. Like there's something sweet about that occasionally. But I also think it's like by the same token, it could be so cynical. And now there's like because we're on the 10 year anniversary, I think, of the, the can screening of mm-hmm. Southland Tales. Like there was a San Francisco like revival screening of it where like, you know, Richard Kelly came to talk and it's just so I think it's it everything does have its kind of like second life or Mm -hmm. can, you know, as much as you think as much as we talk about stuff just getting buried in an avalanche like there still is there there still is an audience no matter how small that's going to be like, you don't get it. (laughs) And yeah, I saw it twice now and I think. (laughs) had the same hateful response. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I like that too. I think that's sort of a beautiful thing that like is splintered as we're all becoming as a movie culture of the things we're into. That is sort of a beautiful sort of hopeful element to it that like, Hey, I'm glad that people have g- genuinely found some, some appreciation to be had for the movie. And that was what, why I really wanted to just see it again, because I'm open to a movie I've changed since that movie came out. I want to see if right. the movie feels different, works on a different level, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I probably think it's even a more in my mind, like legitimately just such a mess of a movie. 
And it's it's a it's a sad thing because I uh, I thought Donnie Darko was uh, the announcement, the arrival of a really brilliant director. And I think Richard Kelly is talented as hell. I think he's extremely smart, but I don't yeah. think he knows how to lay out all the ideas he has in his head into something coherent. And the director's cut of Donnie Darko shows that Southland Tales shows that. And his uh, the worst movie he's made, we're not even discussing, was his bid for mainstream uh, kind of accessibility with the box, which was a remake of a Twilight Zone episode. Do you did you yeah. do you even remember that movie? I mean, it's like I feel like nobody. I really remember coming out. I actually, never saw it, but oh, uh, it's bad, man. It's really like talk, and it's it's very similar issues of tons of exposition, a a very like sluggish pace that just seems all wrong. You know, like it feels off yeah. right away. And that's what's borne out every time Richard Kelly's had like full control with with uh, with these films, and it, I I think it's a shame that he hasn't really been able to work on anything since. It's I'm sure he's been at it and trying. Um, Wait, and I just wonder if like television, like in this yeah. era of like you, you can plug all these people who there's just not enough film work necessarily as many as much as so many films are coming out, there's just, there isn't the same kind of machinery at work as there is in television. So you can plug all these filmmakers that you like into like, you know, kind of interesting work. And it's just like, if he could be pared down to where he had to concentrate on episodes, you know, and can kind of figure out what works. Cause he, yeah, he just convolutes like his material and he doesn't, I think there was just a real kind of like lightning in a bottle moment of like having the cast he did, having the sort of producers he was working with on Donnie Darko that sort of pared everything down to its essential. Mm-hmm. And you have like a, a sort of, it's a really interesting coming of age movie paired with this crazy science fiction head trip, you know? And it's like, it's a puzzle of a movie in a way that like, I don't give a fuck what the puzzle amounts to in Southland Tales. I don't want to put it together. It's too annoying. <laughs> so Whereas true. like Donnie Darko is the opposite where it's just like you, you kind of like ponder over it and it's like, it's darkly humorous. It's sweet. It's like romantic. It's beautiful. It's scary at times. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real great marriage of like a David Lynch nightmarish tone in there too. And mm-hmm. it is dreamy at the same time. The, the amalgam that Richard Kelly is like can't avoid doing in his work like he wants it's that's the ideas that are pouring in it 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 has only worked in that version of Donnie Darko and I, it there it's it was yeah. really I was a little nervous because it had been a long time since I had just watched it you know once you obsess over a movie for a, in a brief period of time you, you go you got to let it cool a little bit like exist mm-hmm. in your memory and it was really refreshing last night to put it on I I was pretty tired after a travel day coming back to Portland, watched it late at night. And I just, I was like woke up by it again because all of the things really work in it. That casting is so perfect. All the stuff we talked about, but it was just very refreshing to, to be like, yeah, this movie truly like holds up for me. It's, it's a great movie, but one that might've been an accidental great movie by, by a director that I still think is figuring out how best to work in the, in the system. So uh, it, yeah. it it would be really interesting to see him work in TV and maybe, maybe he should try to adapt something like a Philip K. Dick story, a uh, friend of the show and fellow podcaster, uh, Octay Kozak, uh, it w- was, uh, just talking last night to me about how much he, he is annoyed that Richard Kelly is always ripping off Philip K. Dick story ideas. And, right. and, and Kelly's never been, uh, he's always been open. Like he talks about his, his, his appreciation for his work, but um, maybe he needs to do something like that and just see how it can work. Because 
with well, not with, yeah being untethered might not be the best way for him well because you you clearly see what's unfortunate is i think that like southland tales took so long to get made that um there's elements of sean william scott's story in it um where he's he's playing twin brothers you think one of which is a cop and then the other is pretending to be him as the cop so there's this dualistic split and there's actual like effects in it where his like his perspective is starting to warp. And so it's directly lifting from scanner darkly. Right. And like he, I think he eventually even quotes a title of a Philip K. Dick book by saying flow the tears, like the tears, the policeman said. Right. And it was just like, at this point, like because the movie took so exhaustingly long to get out there, scanner darkly was already made. So it's just (laughs) like, it was two, two years later that I think Southland tales came out on DVD. It was like a year after scanner darkly came out when it came out theatrically and it was just like – and it had this political commentary that was seemed so dated by the time it came out because we had seen uh, American politics satirized for years and years through The Daily Show, through The Colbert Report. And it was so smart and so nuanced day after day that like what – like when you, br- when you brought it out in like 2007, you really had to like pare it down and have it be like focused to – actually be super sharp in a way that was competitive with everything else. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I do, man. Yeah. So it's just like, it's, it's just too bad that it like, I think he does need to pare it down. I think he does need to like sharpen his focus and maybe it is an adaptation. Like, unfortunately the box was an adaptation of like a Richard Matheson story and he just like overburdened it clearly from what you're saying with like too much stuff. Mm-hmm. Someone needs someone. He needs those producers to rip it away from him and be like, "No, no, no! You know what you're doing. We just have to tell you." <laughs> <laughs> well, we're pulling for you still, Richard Kelly. Let's uh, we'll we'll see what the future entails for him. But yeah, it was it was great to to just be reminded of how great Donnie Darko still is, and uh, not so great. But uh, you know, I'm glad I gave it a shot. Self Tales still me too. Still yes, it, it does. It does pop back up as something where it's like, you really need to take a second look. And it's like, okay, fine. So we did. We took a second look. We did. We we came. We saw a second time. And we still hate. So, oh, well. Mm -hmm. All right. Throw that back. (laughs) Totally. All right, so with that, why don't we wrap up episode 139 of Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, Just a reminder, this is, again, part of the Playlist Podcast Network. We have our other shows on the network, like Over Under Movies, the Playlist Podcast, and the new TV show that we've introduced called Bingeworthy. Uh, All of those can be found on the Playlist Podcast iTunes feed, if that isn't too confusing for you. And uh, yeah, we all our episodes uh, of Adjuster Tracking are archived at theplaylist.net. So find us there. We thank uh, editor in chief of the site, Rodrigo Perez, for his support. And uh, yeah, so Adjuster Tracking, you can find us on Facebook and you can email us at adjustertracking at gmail.com. But uh, what's the other one? Twitter, Joe? Where do they find us there? At Adjuster Track. Come get us. We'll come get you back. That's true. Um, scratch our back. We'll scratch your back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tweet our back. We'll tweet whatever <laughs> just stop it there that's right well we'll yeah. be very we'll be very thankful uh, if you do that but uh, not as thankful as i am to talk with you joe so thanks for talking with me today thanks eric